What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Lee2B, the sassiest podcast for B2B. I'm your host and friendly neighborhood growth marketer, Lee Moskowitz. Coming to the mic today is Mandy Thompson, the co-founder of Digital Reach Online Solutions, where HubSpot expertise meets an untamed spirit. A serial entrepreneur since 19, Mandy's journey catapulted her to mid-seven-figure success before embracing a nomadic life. With a knack for rewriting the rules, she's now blazing trails in the remote realms of Alaska and New Mexico. Join us as Mandy spills the tea on thriving in the digital landscape while being authentic to yourself and those around you on this episode of Lee2B. Hey, Mandy. Hey, Lee. Great to be here. Yes, yes. Thank you for coming on. So the bio that I just read, you started your first business at 19. What was it? How? Yes. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, actually, like I started my first business probably when I was like, so my parents spent, we went up during the summer to a place in Washington state called Nia Bay. It's on the end of the Olympic Peninsula. It's a indigenous reservation. And so my dad ran a charter fishing boat and my mom ran a pizza shop. And so from a young age, I would help like mm-hmm. clean hotel rooms. I would take orders and change money at the pizza shop. I would work in the little, I mean, resort is a very, like they called them resorts, but not like we're thinking resorts like Four Seasons or the J-Dub. We're talking about like a little shop that sells bait and tackle and fishing reservations. So I was doing all that before I was like 10. And then I had like a lawn mowing business and like made little flyers and went around the neighborhood. So I learned, it's very funny because my, my dad was military and then a school teacher. My mom was a school teacher. So all of my siblings, the three of them took those more traditional paths and then there is me who I consider myself to be unemployable because I have not been employed really ever as an adult. So I don't think I would take well to having somebody <laughs> tell me what I have to do. Although, I mean, you know, we have clients, they're kind of like mini bosses, but you still have a bit more autonomy. So, so yeah, I was in real estate mm-hmm. and finance before. And then when I started traveling, I needed something that would allow me to be mobile. And so that's how I, I mean, I was doing my own sales and marketing. Didn't really realize that I was, you know, what the names were for what I was doing, content marketing and PR. Wait, you mean you couldn't sell real estate online? Yeah. You couldn't sell real estate online? That's not how it works? So yeah, it was, you know, that you probably could now, but people weren't quite like I tell people like, because we just got back from a trip, a hiking trip in Peru. And we were talking with some friends just about how different it was traveling even back in like 2010, 2011, because like you couldn't get a SIM card everywhere, right? Like now you don't even have to go to a carrier to get a SIM card. There's a, an app called Allo SIM and you just get to the country and buy your SIM card and you're ready to go. So I didn't even, for the first two years of travel, I didn't really even use a phone because I didn't have service anywhere. Wow. So I just kind of was offline, which is funny with how online I am these days. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, your business literally has online in yes, it. Yes, it's part uh, of the name. We, we are, we're jumping ahead because this is third business that you're, you're running. Before. Yes. So what, what did you do before? Like what were, I guess, how did you, what did you do before you landed in an agency world? Yeah, so before that, so I was in, I was a real estate agent and did real estate investment as well. So that was my first business. And I only had a couple of employees with that business. And then I got into working with working with homeowners during the housing crisis. And so that business was about 25 employees at its largest. And then, and then on to the, you know, digital world of software consulting and digital marketing. And so we're about 40 people at Digital Reach. Nice. And so tell, tell us about it. So one, we're going to nerd out about HubSpot because yes. <laughs> I am a HubSpot power user, HubSpot nerd. You are, you mean, everyone knows you for HubSpot, I feel like almost, but you're always posting videos. Are you, are you a diamond platinum agency now or or diamond or platinum? Yeah, we're a diamond. We're diamond now. Yeah. Congrats. And for people listening, who's not familiar with the tier structure, the HubSpot has a whole partnership program and there's different tiers for partners. And so you, you work your way up and diamond is, is the second highest or the highest? The second highest. Elite is the highest. Elite. There it yep. is. Yeah, Elite is like the giant companies too. So yeah, and it's, but yeah. Well, it's so int- that basically means. Yeah, I was just gonna say it's interesting because I don't think that it is always something that is aligned with the company's size. Like some companies put a really big priority on selling software, even when the services are at 
negative margins for the business. And so either they're doing that Mm -hmm. because they have the funding to cover massive negative margins or because a lot of, you know, very difficult work is being put on staff to carry negative margin work. And so we like to, you know, we have a business and so we like that business to be profitable. So, you know, if it's not a good deal for the team, right, because they're the ones who have to deliver this work that we're selling, then we don't do it. And that means that we're not getting to elite as fast, but we're very focused on quality work and work that is fair to the people who work at Digital Reach. Yeah, well, one, I think that is so important, and I I might rant a little bit here, but the reason (laughs) why hearing an agency owner say that is one, you know, being on both sides, one, if I am a client, I want to know that my team is, that that my, my, my marketing partner, my agency, my team, they're dedicated to me and they have time. I don't want to feel like they have 20 of me and I'm a nuisance to them. <laughs> or they have 20 of me and they, like, they're spending two seconds on it. Because uh, that happens a lot at agencies. So that's, that's part of it. Two, the second is, as someone who works at an agency, that has to just be music to their ears because they aren't burning out, which is just a huge part of agency life if you have too many clients. So I said a mm-hmm. lot. Well, I'll let you talk now with your thoughts. No, I agree with you on that. And I think that it's like the long-term strategy, right? Like that's everything is like thinking about the long game. And so long-term, especially when you're in the services world, whether that's consulting agency, et cetera, your people are your product, right? And so they always are, but they really are. Like it is their brain power. It is their experience. It is their effort that we are selling. And so Aside from being the right thing to consider people and treat them fairly just because that's the good thing to do, it's also the smart thing to do because if you burn people out, then people are going to leave. When people leave, that has a really big cost to your company and so and to your clients. And so I think for a lot of reasons, that's the way to go. And then on the client side, it's a big transformation. And that's why I use the word consultancy, like moving towards that model where everybody is responsible and reasonable. I know that you've seen this, Lee, because you work on the agency side, that people sometimes try to treat services companies like they're buying a coffee at Starbucks, you know, and like, you're not just buying a Mm -hmm. commodity. And again, I, I know there are people behind that, but you have, you know, goods that you're selling that you have a massive market on markup on when you're in that type of business. We don't, right? And so we need to be very mindful about when we sell you a package, if I tell you it's going to be done in six to eight weeks, I need to make sure that my team can actually deliver based on the time that they have available, based on everything that we already have booked, right? But then there's a responsibility that comes from the client as well, right? Like you also have to stay committed to that timeline. Because if I commit people to do your work, and then you don't get us what we need to do your work, well, now we have people not doing work because we're actually considering meeting our the agreement with our clients and making sure that I'm not booking you know, someone on our team for 60 hours of billable work in one week and driving them crazy. And so it's that like, kind of like a trifecta of responsibility. And that's something we're really focused on right now in our business is how do we improve that internally and externally to improve outcomes for everybody who is involved in the transaction? Yeah, I mean, so this is, it's a hard question, but how do you do that? Like, because like agency life, it's, I feel like it's so hard to strike the balance between, yes, we're, we're all happy, we're all doing things, we have a healthy workload, and then we're, we're also super profitable. Because mm-hmm. with agencies, a lot of it is just like more clients. I mean, any, any organization, it's more clients, more deals, more pipeline. So how do you balance that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think there's a couple of things. So number one, like I said before, the long, like the long game the more, more, more is going to catch up with you eventually, right? And for me, like, I do not like people being unhappy with me. Like, I can't sleep if I know that people are, you know, unhappy and reasonably so, right? If they're unreasonable, you kind of got to deal with that because, well, we both worked in agencies. A lot of people are not reasonable. So when people are unreasonable, you have to learn how to obviously just let that roll down your back. But if, right. you know, I don't like making Otherwise mistakes. you're never sleeping. Yeah, no, or you'd never sleep, right? And so like, I don't like having, and obviously mistakes happen, but I want to make sure that we're doing a really, really, really great job. And so I think that taking a step back and like, okay, like last year for us, this is not going to be our greatest year, but we're going to 
make sure that our operations, our processes, and our people allow us to grow in a sustainable way for everybody involved. And so I think a lot of people don't want to do that and have a year where you don't really make much money or even lose money because you're actually focusing on how are we going to do this sustainably, right? And then from there, we really started looking at, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a money ball game, right? Like how do you, like how much, what are our rates per person that we're, even though we don't sell by the hour, when we build out our SOWs, we're always looking at the hours that are going to go into them, right? And we're assigning those internally. And so how much is even our capacity realistically, right? And counting things like when we build our model, we count on eight weeks of people not working because that's just the reality. Like it might only be six, but if we count on eight and it's only six, then we're winning. If we count on six and then it ends up being eight, we're already behind the ball, right? And so starting with a model of like, what realistically can we do, right? And then I think it starts with internal responsibility. A couple of years ago, I did this really great workshop through Vistage on a mutual accountability model. And it's taken time. Like, right, that's the thing I think that happens whenever we go to seminars and conventions and conferences is we're like, we learn these things and we think we're going to implement all of them the next month. And change management, which is a lot of what we work on with the HubSpot side of things, it takes time, right? So it's taken us almost two years, Mm -hmm. probably about a year and a half to actually implement that, right? And so with that model, it gets everybody working together to hold one another accountable because they have a shared fate and it's measured in a way that they can see it, right? So we're in the process right now with our developers of building a custom solution, extracting data from Teamwork, which is our project management uh, platform, and pushing it into DataBox so that we can have custom reports and moving away from logging hours, which Mm. can feel punitive, to completing tasks. And so let's say you get a 10-hour task and it takes you five hours to complete it you get 10 billable hours credit, whether you spent that or not. Now, if it took 15, you still only Mm -hmm. get 10. And then having the conversation space available. So it's like, well, okay, if every time we do this task, everyone is over, we need to change how we're selling that particular deliverable because clearly we're not estimating it right on the sales side. So once you have that part in order, then I think you can take it to the client side. Like we know that we've got our ducks in a row to be able to deliver on time because that in and of itself is difficult. And we know that our processes to manage the clients are effective. And so now we're going to take that to the client side. So in our first quarter of next year, we're going to be rolling out different paths that our clients can choose around a resource path. Cause everyone says they want, it's always funny when, you know, especially with our HubSpot stuff, it's like, Oh, well, can you, you know, six to eight weeks, that seems like a long time. And I always, I don't laugh at people, but I'm like, it will never get done in six to eight weeks. Cause you will not get us what we need to get this done in six to eight weeks. Right. right. And so you know, occasionally people do, yeah. but usually people have these big ideas of what they want. And it's kind of like what I talked about going to that that presentation, right? Like I want to implement mutual accountability yesterday, but the reality is it's probably going to take me a year, year and a half to do it. And so to really get everything right to do it, not to shove it down people's throats, like you're going to do this, but like we have to support everyone winning as an organization. And what is that going to take? That It took internal change happening before we could even think about rolling it out and having it work. And so then it goes to, okay, we're doing it internally now. How do we make the clients give them a choice, right? Like you could take the non-resourced path, which is going to come with mm-hmm. a monthly project management fee for anything beyond the scope time period. And if at any point you can't meet your commitments, the timeline might get pushed back, right? Which gives our consultants and team members the room to balance things so that they can meet the goals that we're asking them to meet, right? So it's a bit of an orchestra. And first thing you have to understand, like, what are you orchestrating? And then what tools do you need to orchestrate? And then does everyone have buy-in understanding? So it's a big change management project process, but I do think that you know next year and the years following, that it's going to bear a lot of fruit for everybody involved. Again, the clients, the team, and of course the company. If all those things are working, then margins should be good. You, that's like, you have it down almost, I feel like. That is so like organized with everything. And this, that that's what, what I want to hear when I hear consultancy. And I said consultancy, not agency. But with with HubSpot, there there's there's so much stuff. Like, so people wanting to do HubSpot and coming to an agency, that can mean they want marketing help. That can mean they want uh, marketing ops help. That can mean maybe they even they need more rev ops stuff or they need custom objects that are built in with different integrations. Other times it's just like, hey, we need a CRM. Uh, how, who comes to you? It could be all of the above. And then how do you like figure that out with the person needs? 
Yeah, great question. And you're right. HubSpot is at this point, no one person is great at everything, right? Like even staying on top of new features they're rolling out is a full-time job. And so, and I think a lot of clients, when they come to us, like we get, so again, this goes with kind of like the whole tiering thing. We actually get more customers from customer success folks at HubSpot or people who have found us through the community forum or somewhere else that we're sharing information who have the tool and, you know, their HubSpot dreams didn't come true the first time, right? Whether it's because they chose HubSpot onboarding thinking Mm -hmm. that was enough, but when you choose HubSpot onboarding, they will not touch the, your portal. They will guide you and tell you things to do, but they're not going to touch anything. And most people need at least, you know, 50 to a hundred hours of work done for them so that they can get to a place where they can, you know, tinker around the edges if they do have the bandwidth to do that. And so we work with a lot of people who did not have success the first time around. So I think that really understanding what are you coming to HubSpot for? What are you trying to solve? What position are you really in to solve it? Cause I think it can be really easy to get excited about all the features and automation and integrations, but it's like, okay, but we don't have our deal stage and life cycle stage exit en- entry criteria defined yet. And so like, before we get into building this, you know, machine for you, let's get some basics in your process and how we're going to measure things, how people are going to know when it's time for them to act in a certain way or perform a specific task, like starting there. And so we work across all of the hubs, but I would say that a lot of what we do is, you know, on the marketing side of our business, setting up marketing operations, setting up ABM, integrating all the tools, getting reporting set up. So that either people can run with it or we continue to maintain that. On the marketing side, we primarily provide paid advertising management and then marketing operations services and campaign analysis. We don't do a ton of content. We have some engagements that provide it, but that's not a huge focus for us. And then on the HubSpot side, it's really making it fit for purpose. So what are you trying to do with it? And what's realistic? Again, like someone can come in on the marketing side, like, oh, we want to set up all these things. It's like, Okay, but who is going to continue to iterate and test and analyze and build? Like, okay, you want Mm -hmm. 19 segments. Who's making all the nurtures? Who's watching them? Who's adjusting them? Like, that's not a realistic thing for you. Why don't we start with three? And once you have three running successfully, then we can go on and build from there based on the bandwidth that you have. And so it's the same thing on the other side with more of the, you know, non-marketing operations. But we do a lot of custom work. So we do a lot of custom integrations for a political action fund, we're building a custom canvassing app on CMS uh, enterprise and operations hub right now. So we do like to get imaginative this year. I had a session at inbound with an applicant tracking system solution, which is our applicant tracking system that we have built on HubSpot and that we run all of our jobs through. And so, you know, really, I guess the answer to cross the tool, but we also make sure really the biggest thing is, you know, can we do what you're looking for? Because one thing we don't do is, you know, I think that this is an area that's a bit of a gray area on like what is RevOps. And I think that that's very much like it gets a bit murky. We are not trying to consult people on like, here's what your sales process should be. Here's what your SDRs should do. Here's what your sequences should have in them. We'll tell you best practices. We'll tell you what we've seen work, but we are true like technical operators, right? And so Based on what you need, we'll let you know how to best build that into the system so that you can automate, track things, set your team up for success. And of course, we can look at your data and say, okay, well, it looks like this sequence isn't working. So maybe adjust this sequence, right? But we don't get into that territory of like, we're business consultants. Where a lot of agencies, freelancers struggle with is, is, I mean, you talked about how custom everything is and how complex things can get. It can be really hard to scope these projects and Mm -hmm. say, yes, it's an onboarding plan with HubSpot or it's a, you know, refresh or integration, but sometimes it could go out of nowhere or the person doesn't know. How do you scope it so you're, 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 you're profitable, but you're still keeping the, the client happy and it's accurate? Yeah, great question. So we we have a very consultative sales process. So a lot of people would say this is one of the things I learned in business, like don't don't listen to too many people because everyone's got answers, but no one's responsible for your business but you, right? <laughs> the biz- biggest mistakes I've made are over listening uh-huh, to people uh-huh. who have a big interest in, you know, making money, charging me for their advice, but they have zero responsibility mm-hmm. on the outcomes of that advice. And I'm not saying anyone had has, you know, mm-hmm 
I think that a lot of people get into consulting, not really realizing the impact of the advice that they're giving people. And that's why, again, I mentioned not getting into business consulting. Like, you know, it would take me so long to be able to make a recommendation to you on how to run your business and make financial choices or choices that will impact you financially in a big way that like, I just don't feel like, you know, that's really a space that I want to be in. And maybe because I have been the recipient of not great advice before. But so with that point being, I'm very involved in the sales process and people will say, oh, your goal should be to get out of it. It's a lot more successful all around when I'm involved because I have delivered services across everything that we do outside of writing custom coded actions and building APIs, right? But I talk extensively with our developers to understand what it is that they do so that I can understand the capabilities, the scope, and they scope those parts, right? So they figure out those hours. But basically we have a very consultative sales process and we do as much discovery as we can in that process. And we'll even chart things out on Lucid, make sure that what we're thinking is in line with what that customer is thinking. Cause while it may be, and of course you want to have great qualifying if you're going to put that much work in. So you have a HubSpot rep comes to us and is like, I need this deal to close next week. And they have six custom integrations and I have five partners on here and their budget's 20 grand. It's like, yeah, I'm out on this one. Thank you for contacting us. But that doesn't sound like a good use of my time when there's so much competition, such a short timeline. Like we invest a lot into this process, right? On average, we're putting 15 to 20 hours in before we even start. And so if we're going to do that, we want to make sure that we have a fairly high likelihood of winning. And we do have a very high win rate because we're choosy on who we're putting that amount of time in with. And because it is so consultative, like we had a you know, somebody who's just getting started with us, you know, who's been in procurements for a long time, say that our proposal was the best proposal she's ever seen because we scope out everything very specifically. And then we put all those specifics into the SOW and in the SOW, everything is very measurable, right? This is one of the things where I think both agencies Mm -hmm. and customers lose is when you have squishy agreements. And so if we say we're going to solve this problem, we don't just say we're going to, you know, automate your sales process you're going to get 10 basic workflows. And a basic workflow is up to this many options for entry criteria, this many if-then branches, and this many actions. And an advanced workflow qualifies as this. A custom-coded workflow includes this many you know, actions of custom code because you can put multiple into one workflow. We're going to create 100 custom properties, right? And so all of that is very clearly defined. We're going to have five consulting workshops that are an hour. We're going to have three enablement sessions that are two hours or you know, broken up into one hours, one hour increments, whatever somebody would prefer for training their team. And so we put all of that, we're going to chart this many lucid charts that are going to be linked up to your solutions. That way it is very clear what's done or what's not done, right? Because we'll always have like, we're not going to do the full consulting process before we start, right? So we also have verbiage that's like, hey, this is based on the conversations we've had with you. So if there are additional workflows that you need, additional workshops, Here's what the cost is for each of those items if you need additional items. And so that's been really great when you get to the point where, you know, we had one not too long ago where they brought in a an additional department at kickoff and it required, you know, a bunch of extra work. And at the end of the day, we did some extra, but we had to draw a line. And when we drew the line, of course, they didn't want us to draw the line. And like, no, you said we were going to solve this. It's like, well, we said we were going to solve it within these parameters, right? And so we have beyond fulfilled everything in this SW. Right. So if you want those things done, like people are working and it, it still blows my mind all the time, Lee. And I get it because people don't have services businesses, but like there is no free lunch when people are delivering the work. You've got to pay yes. for all of I it. I it all the time. I love that phrase. It's it's not like the free latte at Starbucks because they didn't, you know, foam your milk right or whatever, right? Where, where it costs them. Mm-hmm. Nothing, right? Like not nothing. And obviously I'm not saying those businesses don't have impacts from things like that. But you know, for us, if it's like, oh no, I want you to give me 30 hours of free work, it's like, okay. So you're asking me to fork out five grand for you. You're asking me to have my team do work without pay. Like, who do you want to lose so your business can win? Cause I just don't I just don't get it. But yeah, I get where the mentality comes from. But if you stop and think about it, like Equitable and reasonable are two, you know, two things that I always focus on. And when I'm measuring, like, do I think, you know, how do I want to respond to what's being asked of me? I go through a measure of like, what's equitable and reasonable in the situation? And am I, you know, are there any double standards, right? Because sometimes we're all unaware sometimes, right? When it's like, oh, well, I don't like they're doing that. And it's like, wait, yeah, I'd probably do that too, actually. So let me think about this a little bit more. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Sometimes people just like clients see what they can get away with too, and that's sometimes all it is. Like you just got to push back. Uh, other times it's like, oh, maybe there actually was a misunderstanding, and yep. so like, yeah, like I, I think meeting them in the middle is 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 an art. Yep, but also having firm boundaries in your team, like. I think that's something that, you know, if I were giving advice to agency or consultancy owners is just people are afraid to set boundaries because they think people will walk away. And that exact thing you said, a lot of times people are just in its culture. Number one, it's a human thing to see what you can get away with. It's part of our mm-hmm. evolution as human beings. And so it's inherently human. But then it's also very like inherently American to do that. It's a big part of our culture here as well. So you just have to understand that like, just because someone asks doesn't mean you have to say yes, right? And so if you draw that boundary, a lot of times people will respect it, right? And if someone's being unreasonable and you put your foot down, you know, we've done that and had people continue to work with us and we've done it and had them not work with us. And it's like, well, yeah, I would have rather kept the relationship going if it would have been reasonable. But if someone's not willing to be reasonable and they have to walk away, you know, we had a, a, a client that there was, you know, one of our team members in a call with them had a misstep, Right. But they proceeded to say that basically everybody they had talked to was inept and knew nothing. And I'm like, yeah, that's not like that email is going in the CRM when you send it. People can see it. I am not going to respond to you like, oh, I agree with you that everyone here is dumb. No, that is like, you know, that is an absolutely, you know, unfair way to speak. And I get what you're saying about the one person. I apologize for that. I will compensate for that. But this kind of language and saying this, like, I do not accept that. And I would appreciate that not happening in any other emails or conversation because it's rude and it's disrespectful and it's untrue. And if you want to make that claim, please give me more details that show me that every single person you've talked to is this, that, or the other thing, right? And then they don't have anything to say to that, right? And then that relationship ends up ending. But at the end of the day, again, it goes back to that whole, like, everybody, this is a balanced equation. And so if I let customers talk about like the team to the team like that. And then they see those communication and I don't hold the customer accountable. If there's not clear evidence that they are right, then you, you know, things just get messy. And so I think that if people, you know, the advice we did just have a little bit more courage and to, you know, I've never had it happen where we, when we stood up to someone, if that did cause the relationship to end where we, you know, it's like that cliche when one door closes, another door opens always when you're willing to stand up for yourself and do the right thing, a better client comes along who is more respectful, a better fit for your company. And so I just think it can be scary, right? You have overhead, you have to cover. I mean, we have 40 people. That's not a cheap business to run, but I think that it's more risky than people realize to just keep saying yes to everything. Shifting gears, it's time for Spill the Tea with Lee. That's right, this is the sassiest podcast for B2B, and things are going to get juicy. So, Mandy, a while back you and I were were DMing about conferences specifically, but we were DMing about just the general lack of LGBTQ representation, or at least allyship, at these conferences specifically among panels and webinars and speakers and one this is with women in general too i was talking about this with melissa moody and we we're talking about manals but women and and lgbtq people there's just that lack of representation and, and actual speakers and subject matter experts when i say that what's your your thought what's your first thoughts on that I mean, I think there absolutely is. I think that it is still very much either an afterthought or a marketing opportunity for a lot of organizations. And, you know, when I look at, you know, when I look at things like, and we're working on this right now, but like, right, like there is, we're working on next year getting a specific LGBTQIA plus HubSpot user group, right? Because there's not a HubSpot user group right now that is specifically just for that population, right? And it was awesome at Inbound that we had our meetup and, you know, it was the second year of having a meetup, but we're still looking for like, okay, well, where can we get a dedicated space so that all week long people can have an opportunity to have programming, to have a place to feel safe and to continue having conversations and to just focus more on those specific, like there was a wonderful, there's a woman named Rhonda who works at HubSpot, but she also just finished her, PhD researching the you know women in tech and the discrimination and inequity that women face right and so 
like that kind of platform to specifically have a session about those issues. And they did have another speaker. I will say this, like they did have another speaker who was phenomenal. Her name is Elena Joy Thurston, who did a session on specific like LGBTQIA plus issues in the workplace and like what we're all still facing. But I still just think we need more spaces. And sorry, my dog is scaling the couch. He's, he's on a, he's, he's on one right now. But, but I think that when I think about it, there's just still not quite enough. And I don't think that people quite understand. It was kind of like the awakening that non-Black Americans had when the Black Lives Matter movement came to light. That was like, oh, wow, like this isn't just a right now thing. These issues that we all thought went away never went away, right? So when I look at some of the conversations that I had at Inbound, because you know we led the meetup and we did a happy hour afterwards, um, you know, was that like there were people who the year before wanted to go in but never did, right? So what I think about there is like, well, when it's just one time during the conference in one room, that makes people feel more isolated, right? If you have a space, like I don't know if you've been to Inbound and seen the Black and Inbound activation space, but like when you create a space like that, you make more of a statement for that specific group and community and saying right. that like, you don't only want a space for them, you want a space for other people to come and see them and understand them as well. And so, you know, in conversations we had, I remember talking with a woman who, you know, had quite a journey in her own coming out and like what that meant for her. And like people, like someone at her work, like being like, wow, I just didn't realize that like gay people still face discrimination. And it's like, wow, then we need to have more education and space to where it's like, yeah, we've had wins, but you know, there are still a lot of people who are losing specifically, I think now more than ever, especially for, I mean, all the entire LGBTQIA plus community, but the transgender community specifically, right? Like things are at an all time high of awfulness for that part of our community. And so I think the more that organizations can say, not just, you know, I'm going to throw my rainbow stuff on my website for pride month and make our logo rainbow Mm -hmm. on LinkedIn, that we actually really advocate and make our stance. And I think that committed spaces, and I think the company is like, HubSpot are on the right track. It's probably, you know, talking to some folks that have gone to like Dreamforce, like with Salesforce, I don't think they're doing anything Mm -hmm. near what HubSpot is doing. But obviously, I think that there is a lot more to be done. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing, agree 100% everything you said. So plus 100 there. I think the other thing too is LGBTQ plus people Yes, hire them to talk about those issues and everything else we're facing, but also just hire us to talk about the shit we're good at, whether it's HubSpot or, you know, like hire us to be those speakers and subject matter experts because we are out there. Mm-hmm. We are out there. We're, we are ready to talk about that stuff. And if, if you think we're not out there, that means you, you need to open your network a bit more. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with that. And I think that that is... One thing I loved, so I didn't go this year because it was, I learned about the conference because I hadn't heard of it before, too late to make it work with my schedule, but Lesbians Who Tech. And I, and obviously that audience is primarily going to be plus audience members, but, you know, something that I loved about it was like, I went through the speaker application process for that. And they're like, we're not looking for people to talk about, you know, specifically being gay in any of this, right? Like what we're looking for is for people to just talk about these things and you, you know, you happen to be part of the LGBTQIA mm-hmm. plus community, but you are a subject matter expert in this. And that's what we want to hear is that. Right. And so I think that the less, it's like a little bit of a fine line because you want to have the like very clear, you know, like support, but also like, we're also just like the rest of you who are subject matter experts in whatever it is that we do. And we like public speaking and we're good at it. And we also want a chance to, be on stage so that it's not only a like, oh, we're putting this person on stage because of this, but that we're paying more attention to that community and bringing people forward from there because they have the same information to share as everybody else. Right. And a lot of time it's not, I I, I don't, I genuinely don't believe that it's intentional or conscious bias for most of the time. I think there's tons of conscious bias, but I think most of the time it's, 
like oh my god we didn't even realize that everybody in the sea level is is a straight white dude or we have you know a few women there or it's like oh my god we didn't realize our entire conference was full of cisgender heterosexual people like it, it kind of slips the mind but I, I think it's like you know, maybe pay more attention to well, yeah. And when you bring, so the Black and Inbound, right? Like that's been a long journey for that specific group. And now like the, at Inbound this year, the activation space was like at the front of the conference floor. It was really big, really beautiful. And through the years that they have, which, you know, started to just the group doing meetups, right? Kind of like what we've done for the LGBTQ plus community to this point, you know, it has turned into what it is now. And as a result of that, the number of black people who come to inbound has gone up a lot. Right. And so I think that Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. is still really important while we want to like have the part of it where it's like, well, we want to treat everybody the same. And I think that's important, but I think we still need to remember that like those conferences, those spaces might be especially uncomfortable for folks who, you know, maybe they're not even out yet, right? Like whatever it may be, if we can make that safe space, it says this is for you and we see you, you're going to bring more people from that community to your events or whatever it is. And so I think that it is still important to have that call out and to show like, no, this is a place for you. And we recognize that you might not be comfortable and rightfully so. And so we've gone even further to make it, especially safe and clear that you are welcome here as you are. So switching to tattoos, because I know Mm -hmm. you're very passionate about that. Uh, (laughs) I think we are getting a bit better, but there's, there's still that. And again, I, maybe we're not because there's still like, I didn't realize LGBTQ issues were still a thing. The same way people, I didn't realize tattoos were still an issue in the workplace, but there, there's that stigma around it. And there always has kind of been, so you're very outspoken about that. Before I get into your thoughts, I'd love to hear you spill the tea. Is there any notable stories or issues you ran into when when somebody just said something or you felt a little judged about it? Oh my goodness. Not necessarily. So in work, it's always hard to tell because people don't directly say. I do think that, I do not think all people are over it. I think, of course, of a certain age and generation, they're less over it than other generations and ages of people, right? Like, I don't think that if I'm, I think nothing about it if I'm talking to a stakeholder who's in their like 30s, right? Or younger. When you start getting Mm -hmm. into, and especially depending on the type of organization, right? Like if it's older stakeholders at like a manufacturing company, I do, it does come into my mind that people would potentially think something. Now, it doesn't change It doesn't often change what I do. Now, if I'm going into a meeting where I think people are going to be super formal and I've never met them before, I might wear a longer, a long sleeve shirt just to like not have it become an issue. So I think that's still an area where, and that might be my stuff on it as well, right? Like I grew up in a generation that definitely judged it a lot more. I'm 41. And so, you know, things have certainly gotten a lot better in the last 20 years, but in life, absolutely. Like more so like in business, I think people at least are trained to pretend they're not judging. But, you know, I used to also have like an undercut and blue hair. And so traveling, right? Like I travel a lot. And so, yeah, I've definitely had moments of like, I actually, one time I was flying, like, I will always remember this. I was flying Swiss airlines and I was sitting in the row and I had on like, you know, I had a tank top, I had my tattoos, my blue hair and the lady, the, the flight attendant, Took, I was sitting in the middle. She took the drink order of the person to my left, shook the order drink for drink order of the person to my right, gave them both their drinks, never said one word to me, and then moved on. And I was just and wow. probably not surprising. And I was like, excuse me, you know, like I'd like something to drink. And she's like, Oh man, I must have. I said, You didn't accidentally do anything. Like it's very like, look at them, look at me. But I would still like a sparkling water. And I like to do that, even though sometimes my partner was not there for that one. Like, you know, makes her uncomfortable. But she appreciates that it. it just makes her uncomfortable. Because I'm like, I want that person to be a little uncomfortable. I want to confront what happened. Yeah. Not in a jerk way, but like, no, we're not going to pretend that this was like a, you did not see me. And that's what she said. She was like, I didn't see you. I'm like, you did not see me. Like, I have blue hair and tattoos everywhere. You did not want to acknowledge me, but you saw me. 
and like having that conversation with someone, mm-hmm. like, I hope that like by addressing it, like it makes somebody think twice before they do that to somebody again. But I've had all sorts of like, you know, you walk in, you, know, you have that look, you walk into a nice hotel and someone's like, oh, do, do you have a room here? It's like, actually I do. Yes. Like people with blue hair and tattoos can also make money. <laughs> so yes, I do have a room here. Thank you. And so, you know, it's, it's been an, it's an interesting journey with it. I would say outside of the business world gets definitely more discrimination, but I don't think it's limited. That's just the more vocal discrimination or more overt discrimination you see around that. That story, not, not a tattoo story, but it made me the, the making somebody a little uncomfortable for, for when they should be. So I was walking to a local pride event. It was my boyfriend, my mom, my brother. And you know, when people like approach you asking if you want to go to church with them, so yes. <laughs> I spotted him. I, I, I spooked him. I, I saw he was dressed up. He had the he had the Bible. Lovely young Korean man. But he asked us if we want to come to you know church with him. And I was like, well, no. But do you want to come to Pride with us? And <laughs> like you could see that little shift here. And then you're like, oh, okay, yeah. I love that. I absolutely because it just it makes people think, right? <laughs> and it might not change everything, but I think that you know, in those moments, if we feel comfortable to, right, like people might have very, you know, have very real reasons why they don't want to speak up. But if you feel like you can, you know, I say do because you never know what might change, right? And I've had people, you know, say things to me if I'm like, and it might not even be like, I might not have realized how I was being. And then it's like, oh, I hadn't really you know, I hadn't really thought about that before. So now I'm going to think about it because I can see that that comment had an effect that I didn't expect it to have. To remote work, which is another hot topic that I want to hit on. And the reason I want to hit on this is because digital reach was remote before remote was cool. So I want to hear what your top tips are for remote environments. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great question. I think that you know, I think that number one is like taking it in a crawl, well, traveling, right? So remote work, that's a totally different because my remote work started while traveling. So that was most of what I knew as my remote work until 2020 when we couldn't travel because of the pandemic, right? So then it was like working from one spot. But until 2020, my partner and I were completely mobile. We did not have a set home base in the US. We were just, you know, in one spot and another spot, kind of moving around in that way. We also have a truck top camper. And so we would do, you know, remote stuff. And so that was all pre-pandemic. And so, you know, working from home in general, I think it's just like, no, you know, knowing yourself and honoring that about yourself. Like, for example, I really, really like to be able to get a lot of my deep work done before I start calls. Right. And so I wake up way earlier than I would like to because my calls start earlier than I would like them to, right? Because we have team members in South Africa and different locations that I need to overlap with. And so like, I know that I'm a better person. I feel better if I can get stuff done before I have to start calls for the day. Like if the first thing I do is get up and get on a call, like I'm kind of grumpy. And so, you know, understanding that about yourself and honoring Mm -hmm. those things, like I've got to go to coffee shops and co-working spaces sometimes because I really need to be social. And so like making sure that you sprinkle those things in. Now, when you're traveling, I think that gets into a different realm of like really being realistic with yourself, right? And so like, if you have a very like, my work the way that it is now. I cannot travel the way that I used to, meaning I can't be like every week going to a new place because no matter how disciplined you are when you're in a new place, like it takes your brain and body time to adjust. Even if you haven't switched time zones, it's just that is the nature of being a human being. It doesn't matter how hard you work or fight against that. You're going to have a sense of just like the comfort of getting settled in and also just like you're going to want to explore and see things, right? So being realistic with yourself of like what you can expect in your first week or so of being in a new location. And then also figuring out, again, like Mm -hmm. if you don't like working at home when you're home and you need a co-working space, the same thing's going to be true, right? But I also think if you want to have success, again, with a relatively high, a relatively large workload, you need to make sure that you have like a good living space, just like you would need at home, right? You're not going to, you know... I don't think you're going to thrive going from a guest house that's like super cheap that you're not comfortable in to to a place to work. So having like a kitchen so you can have your own food. So they again like eating eating out is fun every day for a period of time and then it gets old, right? So making sure that you can 
cook and do things just like you would do them at home. If you are going to be working at home, like, you know, I don't want to work in my bedroom. And so again, if I'm going to stay somewhere, I better not get a studio. I should get a place that has, I mean, you know, for Jen and I, we always get a place that has two bedrooms because there are two of us that want to work and we like working from home. So we need a place to sleep, one room where one of us can work and then the other can work in the living room or whatever that is. So I think just being realistic, planning as much as you can ahead of time so that you can hit the ground running, but more than everything, anything, make sure you have a good quiet workspace. Make sure you don't assume when you're traveling that the internet is going to be good. Even if you're at a co-working space, as we learned the last <laughs> time we tried to do this, like, but like you do need to go somewhere like a co-working space. Like don't think that just because the coffee shop has internet that you're going to be able to do a video call because yeah. internet standards, all of that change everywhere. Now uh, on the flip side, because there's just the whole return to office RTO, you are an owner, you are a manager. Have you ever been concerned about your employees working remotely? If no, why not? No, I mean, I like, I would love to see it. And we go, we do our best every year or every other year to go see everybody in person. I mean, people are, you know, we got folks in a lot of different countries, so we can't necessarily go see everybody every year. Some people we bring to inbound, right? Like this year we had team members from the US, Croatia, Colombia and South Africa that came to inbound and we were able to all get together in person. But, you know, I think that remote work and wanting people in person, like I don't, it's not that I don't think there are benefits to being in person or a hybrid model because there's research out there and there are, but if you have hired people with the expectation of being remote and you're trying to change that agreement that you made with people, I don't like that because at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. we did see productivity go up a lot during the pandemic when people, obviously they also couldn't go do other things. So I know that's a factor as well when we're trying to, (laughs) you know, have true science and isolate variables Mm -hmm. and all of that fun stuff. But I think that it's really about like, again, like that mutual accountability. Like if your whole reason for wanting people in office is so that you can have oversight on what they're doing because you don't trust what they're doing, then I don't think that you have set up systems and processes to have a good, you know, to, to keep people productive, to make them feel like they can be productive, to have the collaboration tools, to be able to have insight into whether people are thriving or not. Right. And so to me, it's kind of lazy. Like it's easier to be like, Oh, I can see what you're doing. But even like, to me, I also had a business Mm -hmm. where everybody was in the office. Right. And like, I'd walk into people's offices and see them switch from Facebook to their, you know, to whatever they were supposed to be working on. So the thought that like, because people are in office, they're being more productive. I think that's a bit of a myth. And I think it's a lack of creativity on how you can better manage people because I also think that, right, we saw during the pandemic how many more people got included in the workforce and how much more equitable work was, whether that was, you know, obviously people with disabilities, stay-at-home moms, right, stay-at-home dads, like they all got a big boost in employment by that, but also just folks that are like, again, going back to the LGBTQ plus stuff, like not everyone feels safe at work, right? And so you make Mm -hmm. things, I think you should have the option unless you absolutely need to not have the option, but folks that are moving back to full-time in office, I just think that's, I just don't think it's necessary. So I have, I have one last question for you. It's a burning spill the tea question. If you had to pick one HubSpot feature or tool that would be your dream product that they don't have now, what would be your, your dream or request feature? Great question. So I think that my dream feature would be for the workflow tool to function more like Zapier, right? To be able to look like, to use variables throughout the entire automation process and to be able to look things up, right? Like you can only look things up if you use custom coded actions, which means that function is limited to people who can code. And so I would love to be able to do automation wise within HubSpot what I can do in Zapier. Well, so break that down for me. So because like in, in HubSpot workflows, there's like the history and details section. So you can see when errors happen. Um, oh, I, but not yeah, I mean, like, Zapier. So, so here's an example, right? So like, let's say I just built a, we built a really cool solution for a foster organization. And so what we needed to do, right, was when a ticket was created, we needed to basically take the ticket and by knowing the company that was associated 
be able to then pull in the company. Now that's a direct association, right? So a better example would be, mm-hmm, okay, another mm-hmm. Zap I built. Here's a perfect example is, okay, the trigger is a new email engagement, right? And so then when the new email engagement comes in, I can, on that email engagement, see the contacts as well. So then I can pull in everything from the contact into that same into that same Zap, and then I can use that information. So Zapier allows you to pull in, like HubSpot mm-hmm. did make their change where you can take, like if you enroll a contact and it's associated with a company, you can now pull in attributes from the company or the deal or anything that's associated, but you can't get to anything that's not associated directly without custom code. So let's say the contacts associated with the company and the company is associated to the deal, but the contacts not associated to the deal. If the contact enrolled to the workflow, Without custom code, you can't get deal information, right? And so Zapier, right? Once I pull in the contact, I can pull in the company. Once I pull in the company, I can pull in the deal. And now I have all of those variables that I can work with. And they have a much more straightforward like transformation and data formatting tool than HubSpot is. Like you can do it without code in HubSpot to some ability, but I wish there was more of a front-end interface like Zapier's for building automation in HubSpot. Well, this was such a fun episode for me I because I got to nerd out about HubSpot. There's some amazing insight here for agency owners or people just working in agencies or trying to go there. Before I wrap up, I always like to give our, our guests a chance to shout things out, whether you're speaking somewhere or people can follow you. We should put in your website name again. And yeah, anything else you want to call out? Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, anyone who's listening, I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn. So you can look for Mandy Thompson at Digital Reach and then... You know, we love working with nonprofits, so political action funds that are focused on, you know, progressive causes. That's, you know, that's that's who I'd like to work with because that's what I am, you know, what I'm passionate about. And, you know, really like nonprofits doing good. So if anyone out there knows any nonprofits doing good that need better tech, like that's who we and that includes like education in there as well, government as well, but kind of like the non like we work in the B2B side, but I really enjoy working with, you know, where there's just a more direct impact in the community. Yeah, that's amazing. Mission driven. Well, Mandy, thank you so, so much for, for being here again. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I will see you all for another episode of Lead to Be next time. Enjoying Lead to Be? Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. Your reviews go a long way in supporting me. Thank you so much.